Good morning, everyone. I hope you are doing well and blessed of God. Hey, listen, it occurred to me as I was sitting here this morning, as, as Christians, we probably need to be pretty informed about what's going on, obviously, not only in our own lives and our community for the sake of the gospel, but worldwide. And obviously, if you've been paying attention to world events, there's a lot happening. Um, for those of you who have parents, you may remember, this is very reminiscent. It's, it's, it's not Germany this time, it's Russia. It's not Czechoslovakia this time, it's Ukraine. It's not Japan this time, it's China. But world events, they tend to repeat themselves. I'm not trying to be you know, prophetic or anything like that. But if you know history, you're looking at the world map right now and going, this seems way too familiar to back in the 1930s. Um, now, whether or not anything will develop from that is yet to be seen. We don't know. But as a church, we want to at least be informed, not about you, I've been talking to a lot of people this week, and it's clear that there's just really, and understandably why, what in the world, why is Ukraine, why does it matter, what's going on over there, and, and one of the best things about being part of the body of Christ is, is we're an international body, and so at our Lord's Supper service, hopefully next Sunday night, you know, we gather every Sunday night for Sunday of the month, uh, I want to have one of our Eastern brothers or sisters give us a little bit of perspective of, so that we can, A, number one, maybe put a face onto what's going on there, and two, get a sense of why this is important, what's going on over there, and how more particularly we can pray for the body of Christ, because um, we are God's agents of change in a dark and decaying world, and it doesn't get any darker or decaying than what's happening right now in Ukraine. So uh, that'll be, hopefully we can pull this together, and the reason I say that is I just kind of thought about this five minutes ago. So um, we'll have a, a brother from Eastern Europe come and just give us insight in how we as a church can pray, yeah? So before we jump into God's Word, I want to do that right now. Would you bow your heads as we pray for what is happening overseas? Father, Lord... When man is at war with you, it's inevitable that we go to war with each other. That's just the way, that's life, God. Father, the history of our people can be defined in one word, war. And we just see that time and again. And Lord, we right now pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine and our brothers and sisters in Christ in Russia. Um, they are strong, they are resilient, but Father, we know they are afraid and they are in very dangerous situations. But Lord, as we just studied the book of Revelation, this is part of what the church does. We fight against the darkness, not just when it's political and things are calm, but in times of warfare, open warfare. And so we ask that you would give mercy and grace to the body of Christ in that part of the country that they would not be gripped by fear, but as Paul says, rejoicing in hope, because as the world literally falls apart around them, they have the answer. They know why and how it can be put back together again. And it's not through our political leaders, even though a, tre a, a, a treaty may be reached, it's only a matter of time before more war breaks out, because what is behind all the war, as James tells us, what's underneath all the battles, the battle beneath the battle, is sin is the battle against who we will bow the knee to, the Lord Jesus Christ or our sin and our own sinful desires. You have seen this throughout our history. This is nothing new to you, but we come before you asking for mercy and grace for the body of Christ. May they live well. May they die well for the glory of God. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, with that... Friends, would you open your Bibles to the book of Romans as we continue this study of Paul's amazing epistle? Uh, if you need to use one of our pew Bibles uh, in front of you, just turn open to page 883. We are studying Romans chapter 1, found on page 883 in the pew Bibles. 
while you're turning open, let me tell you the story of someone you probably haven't heard of, Robert Murray Machane. Robert Murray Machane was a pastor in the Church of Scotland, and he was an extremely talented and gifted young man, ordained into the pastorate at the age of 23 in 1836. He died seven years later. His short ministry, well, though, was so profound that many still today in Presbyterian churches sing the hymns that, that he wrote. It's a good chance that we in this church have sung one of his hymns. Uh, many of you, maybe you don't know it or not, have been blessed by the Machane Bible reading plan that is still popular amongst evangelicals today. Machane pastored St. Peter's Church in Dundee, Scotland. And the thing that was always on this young pastor's heart, the thing he preached for, the things he prayed for, the thing he pleaded for was revival. So given to the task of revival was Machane that he often became ill. Well, three years into his pastorate at St. Peter's, the, the, the General Assembly uh, gave him a leave of absence to take a bit of a time away from his pastoral duties to get some rest and refreshment and some further study. So uh, Machane had his friend, William Chalmers Burns, uh, take over for him at St. Peter's while he was gone. And then in 1939, revival broke out. The entire nation of Scotland was gripped with this amazing revival of God, and particularly in Dundee, the city that Machane had been the pastor at, the congregation at St. Peter's swelled in size as the fires of revival swept through. The city, the church, the people were transformed, and Machane missed it all. Machane prayed for this. He preached for it. He pleaded with God for it. He just didn't realize that he wasn't going to be the pastor that actually experienced it. Here's my question. What do you do when you don't get what you want? More to the point, maybe, what do you do when the thing that you've given your life to, the thing you've poured yourself into, someone else realizes and not you? Here's what Machane did. As soon as he heard about the revival breaking out, he quickly wrote a letter to his friend Burns, who had taken his place in Dundee, and this is part of what he wrote. You remember, it was the prayer of my heart when we parted that you might be a thousandfold more blessed to the people than ever my ministry had been. How it will gladden my heart if you can really tell me that this is so. Now, you might say, well, of course he should say that. That's the Christian response. After all, rejoice with those who rejoice kind of thing. That's true. But if we're being honest with ourselves, that's not really an easy response to give, isn't it? If you have been working so hard for three years for revival, so much so that you often got sick because of it, and the moment you leave and, and go away, it breaks out. Imagine the kind of professional setback this might have caused for Machane. You know, uh, church headhunters are not going to hire the guy from Dundee to take over the big churches in Edinburgh if revival breaks out after he left, right? That's the kind of thing that should happen while you're there. Imagine the personal discouragement that he could have experienced. What more pure prayer can a pastor pray than revival for people to be gripped by the gospel? Why would God not give that to Machane, who would put himself sickly because of his desire? Why would God not grant that? Was something wrong with Machane? Machane returned to Dundee and resumed his pastoral duties. His, friend's Burn, his friend Burns went to China to be a missionary, 
and Machane died a few years later from typhus fever. But in those few years, he had a robust, fruitful, and powerful ministry. The question I have as I look back at history, is how did this young guy, probably about 26, very young to have so much maturity, how was he able to be so gracious and selfless? I think in part, Machane was able to take a cue from the Apostle Paul, who himself experienced a professional setback and, and personal discouragement. Like Machane, Paul's response was gratitude, renewed zeal, a fervent desire for gospel fellowship for people. When Machane didn't get what he wanted, he just remembered Paul who didn't get what he wanted. And I think we see some of that here in our passage this morning, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, just a little bit under the surface of this seemingly mundane greetings portion to this amazing book of the Bible. What I'd like to do is I'd like to have you stand as I read this portion of God's Word, and then we'll jump in. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 8, and I'll read down to verse 15. This is what Paul says. First... I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we can mutually be encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but this thus far have been prevent prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. For our purposes this morning, I want us to consider the professional setback Paul experienced, the personal discouragement he could have struggled with, and the amazing response that he had. So let's look at them one at a time. Let's begin with what I'm calling the professional setback. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. As you know, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. It's what he was called to. It's what he was known for. It's what he gave his life for. As a matter of fact, when he was converted in Acts chapter 9 on the, uh, on the way to uh, persecute the church, um, Ananias, the, the man whom the Lord used to give Paul his kind of marching orders, this is what we find in Acts chapter 9 verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, go... For he, speaking of Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So the moment Paul becomes a convert to Christianity, his chart is set. He's supposed to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He himself says much the same in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. What, what's that grace? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And if there's any doubt, he makes it explicitly clear that he is, in fact, the apostle to the Gentiles. Romans 11:13. 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. And if you were here last week, we read last week that this was, in fact, what he was called to do. 
in God's redemptive plan that to bring the gospel to reach the Gentiles, he looked for an individual uniquely qualified to the task, and that was Paul. If you know anything about Paul, Paul was a theologian. He was a, a former Pharisee. He was a guardian, a teacher of the law. He was a man from the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says of himself in his autobiography, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So he definitely was a Jew's Jew, a Pharisee from Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, and he knew the law, a Hebrew of Hebrews. But Paul was also a Roman citizen with all the privileges and perks that would have brought him equally familiar with their world as one of its own. So he was the perfect choice to be the man to bring the gospel that had come and had originated with the Jews to the Gentile world because he was both a Jew and had citizenship in the most important Gentile city. He was educated. He was multicultural. He was multilingual. Paul was the man for the job the apostle to the Gentiles. But the crowning achievement of Gentile evangelism, the mother load of Gentile outreach, the seat of the Gentile world, Rome, was not evangelized or reached by Paul. The crown jewel of Gentile evangelism, the Roman church, who according to Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, there were converts in Caesar's own household. These were not reached by nor discipled by the great apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, no one knows who or how for certain the Roman church began. The greatest achievement in Gentile outreach and evangelism and Paul doesn't even have an idea who started it, because it certainly wasn't him. Add to that fact, you know it's in verse 8, that the faith of these Romans was being proclaimed in all the world. Now, it could be like, I think it was about the, the Thessalonians, the same thing was said about the Thessalonians, because they had a vibrant faith and they were strong. That could have been the case, or it could have simply been... Oh my gosh, there's a church in Rome right under Caesar's nose. You get what I mean? It was just astounding that there would actually even be a church there. Either way, the fact that there was a church at Rome was huge news to the fledgling Christian world. The gospel, what that meant, friends, was the gospel in just less than 30 years had spread through the entire empire. If you look on a map, where it starts from in Jerusalem, it is about 1,500 miles, if you just go straight across the Mediterranean's ocean here, but more if you have to go up through land. 1,500 miles, the gospel had traveled in just 30 years to the then-known world and made it to the very seat of the empire. Now, imagine the scene here, friends. You're sitting here at a cafe in Iconium or something like that. There's some Christians around, and somebody's got the, the Corinthian register, you know, and they're reading it. And then, I, I don't know if you see this anymore because newspapers are going out of style, but you remember your dad used to, like, sit at the table like this, and then when he'd want to talk to you, he'd, like, flip it down and look over the paper at you. You remember, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? That whoosh, and then they lift it back up, right? Imagine the scene. Somebody just flips it down. Whoosh, hey, Paul. Did you hear what's going on in Rome? There's a church in Rome. 
And these Christians are getting after it, Paul. Right under Caesar's nose, they bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. Um, aren't you the, the Gentile to the apostles? Oh, yeah. And you have no idea how this happened? Huh. Now, did that bother Paul? Of course not. And we'll get to that in a moment. But you have to realize, see, for us it's odd because it's Paul the apostle, right? I mean, it's Paul. But, friends, we're sitting on 2,000 years of history looking back. But if you read through the New Testament, it wasn't an accepted fact that this is Paul. That wasn't the case. If you read all throughout the New Testament, Paul's apostleship, Paul's ministry, his calling was constantly under attack and suspect amongst people there. And this kind of professional setback, if it were to be said that way, in that the greatest achievement in Gentile evangelism was not accomplished by the apostle to the Gentiles, could have been easily difficult for Paul, if not at a personal level, at least at some professional level. So what I want you to do is keep your finger in Romans and flip over to Philippians. That's a few books to the right. Philippians chapter 1 gives us a little bit of a hint, and then we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians 9 to give us a little bit of a hint of maybe the atmosphere that Paul was struggling to fulfill the calling God placed in his life as the apostle to the Gentiles. In his letter to the Philippians, which, by the way, uh, Paul wrote to the Philippians while later in life when he was in Rome, gives us some hint of some of the challenges he faced. Look at verse 15 to 17. Paul writes this. Ah, let me back up to verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being put in prison, has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Did you notice that? There are people preaching the gospel to rub it into Paul's face, not because of love, but envy for this man. A little bit of competition, maybe. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, just a few, few more books to the left. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, listen to what Paul writes here. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes this. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. There are other portions of the New Testament you read that people were challenging Paul's apostleship. It's not just here in the book of uh, uh, 1 Corinthians or in Philippians he mentions it, but if you read the book of Acts, in every city Paul would go to, either Jews or Judaizers who were converts to Christianity, they wanted the Gentiles to come under the law, would follow Paul from city to city, harassing him, and in some cases trying to undermine his gospel work. 
In some cases, it comes full front page as we have in the book of Galatians with the Galatian false teachers or the super apostles in 2 Corinthians that Paul is aware of. Paul's a legitimacy as an apostle was constantly under attack. And having a thriving church at Rome that was flourishing in the seat of the Gentile world that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, had nothing to do with could simply be another mark against them, another professional mark against them, that he wasn't legitimate, he don't have to listen to him, he's not who he says he is. Maybe you can relate. Not, not in the specific details, but... Maybe you at your office, you are the, uh, the deal closer. You're the one that everyone counts on to close the deal. But yet for the last year or two, you just have not been performing. You haven't been producing. Maybe you were the college athlete and literally you kept fumbling the ball when you got it and couldn't bring it into the end zone. Maybe you are the, the competent parent in your friend group and your kids are going sideways. Maybe you were the valedictorian and you can't get past the second interview. To quote uh, Alanis Morissette, isn't it ironic? Now, honestly, though, like Paul, you're a well-taught Christian. You know your identity is not in your performance, that your identity is in Christ, that he relates to you and loves you, not because you perform and fulfill your monthly quotas. You know that. You have that confidence. So you can imagine how or why Paul would rise above the professional setback and the professional critique of, of his life's work. Maybe that explains it. But how do you then deal with the personal discouragement of unanswered prayer that's connected to that professional setback. It's one thing for your professional life not to be turning out the way you want. Your identity's in Christ. That's okay. But what about when you're pleading with the Lord and you just get no over and over again? How do you deal with that personal discouragement? Well, Paul, we see that here as well. Let's go back to the book of Romans. We see the personal discouragement, how Paul dealt with it. Look, at, look with me in verse 10. Paul writes of Romans 1. Always in my prayers, always in my prayers, what's he praying? Asking that I may at least succeed in coming to you. Now, why does Paul want to come to them? Well, verse 11 tells us because he longs to be with them. And verse 13, it's like three times in a row, Paul says, I've often intended to come to you, but thus far has been, have been prevented. Romans 15, 23 tells us for years... Paul has been praying and asking to be able to come to Rome. His earnest desire, his earnest prayer, consistently denied for years. Imagine, imagine a lesser apostle would be tempted to think, man, if God, if God allowed me to go to Rome, maybe I would have been the one that started the gospel work. How easy my ministry would be at that point. Nobody would be questioning my apostleship then. If only God let me go there. Turn with me to Romans 15, because Paul tells us exactly why he couldn't visit with them. Romans 15, and we're going to start it at, at verse 20. As he closes this book, he says why he couldn't come to them. And thus, Paul says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written... Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, 
since I no longer have any room for the work in these regions, these regions, he's referring to Greece and that uh, northern part of the Mediterranean, I don't have any work to do more in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Romans 15 tells us exactly why Paul could just never get away to go to Rome. And that was the gospel work in Greece more generally, or the Corinthian church specifically demanded his attention. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, and if you know anything about the Corinthians, can you imagine that frustration for Paul? Having to deal with these crazy Corinthians, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, right? When he could be reaching the very seat of the Gentile empire with the gospel. But he's got to be stuck here with these Corinthians who are always arguing with each other, bragging about how spiritual they are and just being immature. And yet that's what he's got to do. And the opportunity to reach Rome escapes him. Like Mishane, who prayed for revival, Paul prayed to visit Rome to further the gospel work. But neither one of them got what they prayed for. Neither one of them got what they wanted. At least not in the way they wanted, right? Machine did get his prayers answered. Revival came. People were gripped with the gospel. Dundee and Scotland was transformed. It just wasn't under his watch. Paul did make it to Rome, just not the way he intended to. Paul later was taken to Rome as a prisoner and spent two years in house arrest. If you're interested in the story, read Acts chapter 21 and following. It records the story. But at least Paul did get to Rome, didn't he? And no doubt Paul had an effective ministry through that uh, house arrest period. We know from history that Paul was released, had a little bit of freedom, and then was rearrested and then executed somewhere between A.D. 62 and A.D. 66. It's difficult to accept, but we have to realize that if Paul the apostle has desires that go unfulfilled, then we probably shouldn't be too surprised that when even our most earnest, godly desires go unfulfilled as well. I know that's challenging because in our cultural moment, feelings are the most like, as long as you feel something, it is authentic. That, that's like the definition of authenticity, how you feel about something. And especially if the feeling you have, the desire you have is a godly good desire, it's almost inescapable in our reasoning that God wouldn't grant it. It almost feels as if God is obligated to give us a godly desire. But as we see here with Paul, that's not the case. Friends, has it, has it ever, have it ever occurred to you that maybe even godly desires, pure of motivation, doesn't necessarily, if it doesn't necessarily follow from that, that God will answer them? Go with me to the book of Acts. Actually, just look to your left. You should see Acts 28. Go to Acts 16. This wasn't the first rodeo for Paul. Look at Acts chapter 16, looking at verse uh, 6 and 7. Now, this is Luke uh, writing the book of Acts, so he's speaking of Paul in the third person. Acts chapter 16, look at verse 6. And they, uh, Luke is talking about Paul and, and, his, and his partners here, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. 
And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Whoa. So, so here's Paul and his, his, his partners here wanting to bring the gospel, and nope, don't do this. Nope, don't do that. And if you want an Old Testament example, write down this, 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the most significant chapters in the Old Testament. David is about to complete his, his home, his empire. He's consolidated his power. Israel is at the, sea, the zenith of their, of their power, and he says, man, should I live in a, a beautiful home and the Lord's in a, a tent? This isn't right. I'm going to build God a magnificent temple. And so he calls in Nathan the prophet, and Nathan says, that's a great idea. You go. And so God says, no, you will not build me a temple. What more pure motivation could there be for someone to want to give of their own expense and time? I'm going to build you a temple for your glory, God. And God says, no. Paul wants to preach the gospel, and God says, no. David wants to build a temple. God says no. Meshane wants to see revival. God says no. Paul wants to go to Rome. God says no. What has God said no to you about? I'm sure he has. Maybe you've gotten no so many times you don't even feel like asking him anymore. Right? Was it discouraging for Paul? Probably. Is it discouraging for you? I bet. So what do you do when you don't get what you want? Right? And generally speaking, we kind of respond, and if you're a Christian, I think there's about three options you have. Number one, we can get mad, if we're going to be honest, we can get mad about it. God, why didn't you do this thing? And, and when you think about anger, anger, there's a lot, there's a lot of self-righteousness in anger, right? There's so, so right underneath anger, being mad, there's a little bit of self-righteousness, which is what makes it kind of dangerous. And it makes us kind of blind because we think we're right in ourselves, Right? God, why didn't you do this? Don't you know better? I do, the implication. And even close to that, sometimes there's this implication of, God, you should do this. You, you, you owe me. I'm good. I go to church. I listen. Even when he goes long, I listen. I even served that Sunday they talked about. It. I signed up for stuff. You owe me, right? Why aren't you giving me what I want? Isn't this how this works? So that's one response. The other response is, it's kind of the opposite, and it's the opposite of self-righteousness. It's kind of what I call more of a self-loathing or self-pitying response. You get sad. Well, God doesn't love me anyway. I don't matter. Who am I? Right? The first one's answered like, don't you know who I am? The second one is, well, who am I? God doesn't care. See, one reaction, we think God owes us, right? The other reaction, we think God ignores us. Both of those are totally opposite of what's going on. The Bible says that God loves us. And because he loves us, sometimes his actions to us confound us, honestly, if we're being honest. It bewilders us. But they're always for our good so that we can become more like his son. Even if, if you experience a setback in the moment, even if that means a desire that you have might go un fulfilled because and if, you, if you're a parent you know this love is not simply about just giving your kids what they want it's it's giving them what they need as well and sometimes what they need is the exact opposite of what they are wanting in the moment and then so how did paul respond that's the third response he responded amazingly. He responded with this amazing humility and trust. So that's what we'll look at next. Look at, so, so you see this 
in Paul, his amazing response, verse 18 and verse 15, if you look at that sandwich, that there's a gratitude and an enthusiasm for what's happening in Rome. There's no sense of envy, right? He is excited about what God's doing in Rome. And then verses 11 through 13, it shows Paul's zeal for their faith and his desire for their fellowship. So he's grateful for what God's doing, and he wants to jump in and be a part of it and keep pushing that work along. As a matter of fact, so obvious is Paul's uh, response that emphasizing his whatever setback he could have experienced or the discouragement he might have felt is hard to see because he's so shaped and molded by the gospel of God's grace. But if we're human beings and reread this Bible knowing that it's about other human beings, we got to read this and go, man, how did Paul process that? Under all the criticism he always got, having this massive setback, after wanting to be there and being denied over and over again, and yet he is so gracious and selfless and wanting to see the gospel spread and these people get blessed. You know, in one sense, it's, it's kind of like that quote, um, I think it was Reagan, it's amazing what can get accomplished when nobody cares who gets the credit. Have you heard that quote? Right? Paul, there's no envy there. He didn't care that he had the title of apostle to the Gentiles. It wasn't about that. He was so excited about that. And we see that, I think, in verse 14. I think verse 14 is a lot more powerful a verse. Let's look at it. How was he able to deal with the setbacks and disappointments? I think 14 is the key. He says, I am under obligation. Obligation. This word shows up about four times in the book of Romans, and it's always translated a little differently. In Romans 8, 12, it's translated, I'm a debtor, a, a debtor not to the flesh, a debtor to the spirit. In Romans 15, it's translated, it's, it appears twice, and each time translated differently, um, that, that you ought to do this or you owe somebody this, and the, the idea is all the same, right? That, that there's something that we owe in response to some other action. You see, Paul was uniquely aware of his calling to be an apostle and him being set apart for that purpose. And this compelled him to rise above any setback or discouragement. Friends, in a similar way as a Christian, we are aware of the calling that has been placed upon each one of us as sons and daughters of God. And, and we are aware that we have been set apart, as 1 Peter 2 says, to be God's chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. But here's something that re is really important. It wasn't an obligation of, um, it, it wasn't merely an obligation of guilt or duty, but one of affection. Let me explain what I mean by that. And I want to be very careful here because I, I don't want you to hear obligation as we typically understand that word. Is this something you got to do because? Right? And so some of you may be expecting that. Oh, because that's what good Christians do. But if that's how you hear it, what you, what you labor under is this kind of a moralism. Right? Good works, a works righteousness kind of thing. A, I have to do this because that's just what Christians do. And there's no, there's no delight. There's no joy in that response. See, friends, Paul could face his, his professional setbacks, his personal discouragements so vibrantly, so counterculturally, because he knew he served a God who uses those very things to bring about his greater good. Speaking of Paul's greater good, Paul knew this precisely because God experienced the same things for us. You go, what? 
God experiences setback and discouragement for us. Yes, you guys know this. If you're writing notes, write down Matthew chapter 26, where Jesus prays to the Father that this cup that he has to drink will pass from him. Friends, what purer prayer could there be than that the innocent should not suffer for the guilty? That the one who knew no sin should not have to bear the penalty of all the world's sin. What more God-honoring prayer ought there to be to let justice prevail? And Jesus didn't pray this just once. He prayed it twice. And Matthew records, Jesus was so troubled about what he had to face and endure that Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And friends, yet, even more than what he wanted in that moment, it was to want what the Father had planned. You see, God, Paul, excuse me, Paul knew that God the Father said no to Jesus' prayer. That Jesus' desire here would have to take a back seat so that God would never have to say no to any one of us who ask him for grace and mercy. In order, friends, for all of our ultimate desires for life, for peace, for joy, for satisfaction to be fulfilled, Jesus' desire here must go unfulfilled. He experienced the ultimate setback. King of glory, crucified in shame. Son of God, rejected by sons of men. And discouragement, discouragement, all of his disciples abandoned him. One of them betrayed him. None of them was with him to the end. And yet through all that, what does he say? Yet nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And Paul, in that moment of his life, when he's probably feeling the temptation or the pressure that he's, again, not the apostle to the Gentiles, here's evidence of this, the greatest accomplishment. He has no idea how it even got started. Or the discouragement of years of praying, God is not answering. He knows. He looks back. And he knows in his bones that Jesus faced the same setbacks and same discouragement. He knows it in his bones, and he says, I am obligated to this one. How can I be anything otherwise? He knew he was obligated, not merely out of duty. It wasn't just duty for him, but a love for the one who denied his own desires so that Paul himself would not be denied by the Father. It's an obligation, friends. It's an obligation of gratitude. It's not an obligation of guilt. And let me say this. To deny such obligations of gratitude that we feel in our lives, you know what I'm talking about, that we know that there's an obligation of gratitude that we are owed to someone or something, to not oblige it is to rob ourselves of that much of our humanity. This is what the church father Augustine said. God demands the kind of love that cannot be demanded. That's exactly what he meant. 
Paul had a desire, friends, a love that superseded all other loves in his heart. Now, that didn't mean that his other desires or, 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 or um, loves were illegitimate. They were real. But that this one desire at the end of the day put all the other desires into their proper perspective. And so in his setbacks, in his discouragements, he could see them in light of what God was doing. And so can you. Well, we have to conclude, friends, when, when you don't get what you want, maybe, maybe it's the marriage you've always wanted but you didn't get, even if you are married. Maybe it's the children you always wanted but didn't get, even if you have kids. Maybe it's the career you always wanted but you didn't get. I mean, you, you fill in the blank, friends. God knows. He understands. He knows what it's like to live in a broken world where we don't get what we want. The key isn't to stop wanting those things, and that's what we're tempted to do, right? So, I mean, that, that religions say that, that Buddhism, that nirvana is the end of all desires. And I don't think any of you are tempted by Buddhism. So, um, cynicism in our culture, cynicism teaches us the same kind of thing, that the, the religious Buddhism philosophy. And it goes something like this. You get hurt so often, why bother just loving? If you expose yourself, if you make yourself vulnerable, you'll get hurt. So the key is just harden yourself up. It's the same philosophy, the same idea behind that. Or, or the, the cynic that says, well, nothing really matters at the end of the day, so why even care? Those are some responses. So the key isn't to stop wanting these things that God has given to us for our enjoyment and our good, our pleasure, and our lives. But the key is to want something even greater, even more. To desire something that puts all other desires, and especially the unmet desires, into a better perspective. And for Paul, he found it in looking to his living Savior who experienced no from the Father so that he and anyone who would go to the Father in faith in Jesus' name would never be told no, but would always be told yes. And at the end of the day, friends, and i got to close with this, when you know that you can never, ever be denied the thing you need, now I don't mean like basic necessities, staples, the boring stuff, right? the, the need that the Bible talks about, knowing that we need joy and life and pleasure and fulfillment. That's what we were made for, and that's what I mean. Knowing that we'll never get denied the things we need can make us easier to let go of the things we think we want. That's what Paul did. That's what Machane did, and that's what Jesus did. And that's how we deal with our setbacks, our discouragements. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what Paul, we see in Paul, kind of behind the scenes as we just try to look at what he's saying to the Roman church and think about what it must have been like for him. And we see his love and his genuine excitement for what you are doing in this church. It's a model for us. But it's not just Paul. King David did the same. Robert Murray Machane, people in this room. Father, we thank you for we are surrounded by godly men and women who know what it's like to experience setbacks and discouragements, and we can continue to grow through those things. But, Father, more than anything, we are thankful that you told your son no so that you would never have to tell us the same thing. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and close the song. 
Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.